Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Parkinson's Recovery. This is Robert Rogers, and this is the place to be to be able to get information and support and resources if you're interested in getting ideas for what you can do to get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. My guest today is Dr. John Coleman, who is a naturopath doctor from Australia. John Coleman actually had the symptoms of Parkinson's in a very severe way in the mid-1990s, 1995. He was at stage four, almost in stage five, uh, literally almost on the steps of a nursing home. John made a choice to begin to experiment with various therapies to see if he couldn't find ways to get relief from his symptoms. After three and a half years, he finally, and I want to say it was a jumpy road, he finally became symptom-free. He actually got his certification to become a naturopath doctor and for the last decade has been serving as a doctor for individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's as well as other chronic conditions. He has a great deal of experience with uh, what therapies seem to provide individuals with relief and what therapies do not. The questions that I'm now going to be asking come from listeners, and so what you're going to hear will be John's responses to concerns that listeners have had with regard to one particular issue or another. Here now is uh, my first segment of a previously recorded interview with Dr. John Coleman. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. If you've just joined us, I'm interviewing today... Uh, Dr. John Coleman, a naturopath uh, doctor. John is in Melbourne, Australia, and um, I'm in Olympia, Washington. We have a question from Chris from San Diego. Chris asks, have you any information regarding the supplement NADH? It's supposed to improve cognitive abilities, and Chris is also wondering if it interferes with Azelect or Razaglene. Okay, um, I looked at NADH some some years ago uh, because it certainly did have good press. I could not find any really positive support for it in regard to treating Parkinson's disease. While uh, there are a number of supplements uh, on the market that theoretically uh, should help, uh, when it comes down to practice, it doesn't seem to. So in the end, we trialled NADH with a number of my clients and over a six-month period, we found no advantage in taking it. Uh, so that's number one. Now, Azelect um, is a, not a particularly nice drug to be taking anyway. Uh, it's an MAO... With the, we think inhibitor. Um, nobody's actually sure. Uh, the warning I have here is the precise mechanisms of action of rosagiline are unknown. One mechanism is believed to be related to its MAOB inhibitory activity. That's one thing. So we don't know how it works. And in practice, I've found that MAOB inhibitors, if rosagiline is one, um, aren't particularly useful. The other thing we need to look at is its 
adverse effects and whether that they are um, overwhelmed or offset by any positive effects we might uh, we might see. Now, there's a warning with Azelect that treatment at any dose may be associated with a hypertensive crisis, inverted commas, cheese reaction, if the patient ingests tyramine-rich foods, beverages or dietary supplements or amines. Now, uh, tyramine is present in many, many foods and we don't always uh, know that we're ingesting them. So there is a, a potential for dying from um, taking resagiline and tyramine-rich foods uh, include air-dried aged and fermented meats, um, fish, uh, sausages, salamis, herring, um, any food that's slightly spoiled, uh, broad beans, uh, aged cheeses and dairy products, <coughs> pardon me, tap beers and beers that have not been pasteurised, uh, concentrated juice extracts like Vegemite, Marmite, Promite, etc., sauerkraut, soybean products, um, etc. So there's a lot of foods that we need to avoid if we're taking Azelect anyway. Um, and there's a number of adverse effects, uh, including nausea, dizziness, and uh, headache, arthralgia, dyspepsia, depression, falling, flu syndrome, conjunctivitis, fever, gastroenteritis, rhinitis, arthritis, uh, malaise, general feeling of illness, neck pain, paresthesia, etc., vertigo. So it's not a particularly nice drug. It doesn't do a lot of good. Now, whether NADH is going to react to it or not, I'm not sure, but in my view, neither of them are particularly useful. A question from Dr. Maniac Vora from Vadadera, India. I have been diagnosed with Parkinson's since three years ago. Currently, I have rigidity with muscle spasms and uncomfortable sensations. My legs are heavy and my body is dragging while I walk. My arms don't swing as they should. There is less restricted movement around my neck. Throughout the day, I feel rigidity, spasms, and body sensations, which disturb me a great deal. I have subscribed to John Coleman's uh, classes, and now I regularly take aquas. I drink uh, 8 to 10 glasses of water. I do Bowen therapy. I observe all possible dietary restrictions. But still, my uh, neuro uh, conditions are aggravating. How can I reduce or manage my rigidity, spasms, and burning sensations? Now, we, we need to have a look at the timing and uh, some other supplements here. Uh, we know that uh, Parkinson's or the symptoms of Parkinson's begin in early childhood and uh, without knowing how long uh, Dr. Bora is, we can conjecture that it's taken at least 50 or 60 years for this condition to develop. Therefore, it is going to take some time for the condition to reverse. That's number one. Doctor, you've taken some sensible steps in beginning the journey with uh, the aquas through uh, changing your diet, and we need to be assiduous with that. Now, 
it's not usual that we get an aggravation of symptoms. However, it is common that in the first two months or so of going on to this program, we don't actually stop development that is already going on. It's like uh, stopping a large truck. When we put the brakes on, it's still going to take a couple of hundred metres, a couple of hundred yards, for the truck to actually pull up. So you have started by putting the brakes on, but it's taking a while for the symptoms to slow down and plateau. However, there are some uh, strategies that we can look at. One is magnesium. And magnesium is a, a muscle relaxant and also a nerve relaxant and it's useful for brain cell function. Um, I've found that one of the best ways to take magnesium as a supplement is in powdered form. And I would suggest uh, at this stage, because I don't know your level of sensitivity, that if you get some powdered magnesium uh, and start with about half a level teaspoon in uh, a glass of water, morning and evening, and that can be part of your water intake. Uh, and then slowly uh, increase that dosage of magnesium uh, until you may reach around a teaspoon morning and evening. The, the level that you choose will depend on what sort of muscle response you get and also what sort of bowel response you get. Magnesium in powdered form is very useful if there's any bowel restriction at all. Now, if that is not sufficient to alleviate the symptoms to some degree, then we need to look at how well your bone therapist is uh, treating you. Not that I'm criticising them, but sometimes we can undertake other strategies as a bone therapist to relieve stiffness, uh, rigidity, and uh, that heavy feeling. And uh, you could ask your bone therapist to contact me for a discussion about a process called yin twina uh, around the feet, which is a very ancient Chinese therapy that combines very well with bone therapy to help alleviate neuro symptoms. Um, we also need to look at your uh, exercise regime. So um, I don't think you mentioned this in your question. You are walking, obviously, and that's excellent but specific exercises uh, that are in some uh, yoga modalities or in Pilates can also be very beneficial in alleviating these symptoms of spasm and stiffness and heaviness. So there's a whole lot of strategies here that we can look at and if you uh, do have ongoing challenges with this then I'm happy to hear from you. Pam from Bellingham, Washington asks, how many people have undertaken the same plan and what results have they gotten? Over the last 10 years, I've treated something in excess of 2,000 people uh, with Parkinson's. Um, many of them in my clinic, but a, a very large percentage of them 
uh, around Australia and or overseas. Now, the level of success has depended primarily on the level of dedication brought to the process. Of those who were really dedicated, uh, four have completely recovered. That is, they, uh, no, they no longer have any Parkinson's symptoms at all. Their general health has improved significantly and they no longer use any medication or any Parkinson's medication. A very significant number have improved their uh, symptoms. So the symptoms have reduced. They are more functional, more comfortable, and they've reduced their levels of medication at the same time. A number have um, stayed about the same, and some have gone on and continued to degenerate. And the interesting thing is that uh, when I first interview people and or I get the questionnaires, I ask for... Uh, feelings about what they want to achieve and what their goals are and many people say to me if I don't get any worse I'll be happy and so that's what they get what they get is that they don't get any worse but they don't get better because their goal their mind is fixed on staying the same other people will say to me I want to be like I was before I got Parkinson's and they focus on that and that's what they get and the person they were before Parkinson's symptoms appeared was a pretty sick person and so that's what they get but the people who've made the goal of making each day better and enjoying life to the full every moment and with the knowledge that they can improve their health, have gone on to get well. I saw a, a, a woman, one of my clients, uh, yesterday morning, sorry, on Wednesday morning in Melbourne time, and she was diagnosed with Parkinson's 17 years ago, and she came to see me about nine years ago. And she has battled on. She's maintained her spirit of determine, determination, uh, her family's been supportive. She's gone on working with the Aquas and Bowen and uh, supplements and we've looked at uh, diet and etc. and her, her mindset. And this is a lady who also struggles with English so there's been some isolation and communication difficulties here. Now, I saw her on Wednesday morning here as I said and her condition in the last uh, 12 months has improved by over 50%. So she's got a breakthrough. She's plateaued for years and now she's turned it around and she's actually getting better. She's walking better, standing better. She's reduced her medication. Uh, she has less anxiety, less depression. She's sleeping better. This is the sort of dedication that takes. We need to be focused on the fact that we can get well we can improve our health, it's our responsibility, and it's a long-term project. I'm Robert Rogers, and you're listening to my pre-recorded interview with Dr. John Coleman. 
visit parkinsonsrecovery.com. That's the website where you'll be able to get more information about what John has just been discussing. That website is www.thewordparkinsons, without an apostrophe, joined together with the word recovery.com. You'll see on that very simple main page a link for Feel Better. If you'll click on that, you'll see, if you're interested in finding out more information, links to John Coleman's book, which is Stop Start, Stop Parking and Start Living. You'll see a link to his 12-step recovery program, and you'll also see a link to get more information about the aquas, which he also made reference to in that most uh, recent answer to the question that I asked. I also have a, a quote that I want to read to you of an email that I just received from Tom, who attended the Parkinson's Recovery 2009 Jumpstart to Wellness program. Here's how it reads. Just a quick note to tell you I'm at day 60 without Cinemat, and I'm feeling really good. <laughs> That's totally and completely uh, exciting and awesome. That really made my day. So that's what uh, Jumpstart to Wellness is really all about. It gives people an opportunity to explore what therapies they really might want to focus on that can give them relief from the sustained symptoms of Parkinson's. Our Jumpstart to Program uh, for 2010 will actually be held in San Diego, California, October the 18th through the 20th, and you can get more information about that from that very same main website, parkinsonsrecovery.com, by clicking on on the icon that says jump start. Now back to John Coleman. Terry S. from Huntington Beach, California asks, at what point of noticing Parkinsonian symptoms says you have Parkinson's disease and when should one start taking medication? Okay, this is a very interesting question because many symptoms we associate with Parkinson's disease are also associated with other so-called diseases. And, and I'd like to make the point here, if I may, that I do not believe in diseases or separate diseases. Uh, in my view and the view of many scientists in the world now, there is a degenerative process in our body um, that may manifest as a whole variety of symptoms that could be diagnosed as cardiovascular disorders or diabetes or cancer or multiple sclerosis or motor neurone disease or lupus or Parkinson's disease. So there are symptoms that are common to many of those. Now the most common symptoms for Parkinson's are tremor of a particular kind tremor at rest with uh, the pill rolling action and that affects about 60% or so of people diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, there is slowing of movements or paucity of movements, uh, the mask-like expression, uh, often there's a, a, a dragging of one leg or one arm uh, stops swinging appropriately so there is the uh, criteria of unilateral onset, the onset of symptoms on one, one side, and slow onset. In the end, there is no test 
all point where we can say definitely you have this thing called Parkinson's disease. Nobody can tell you that. What we can say is you have a set of symptoms that seems to be Parkinson's. We've done uh, an MRI scan. We've undertaken coordination and functional testing. We've done the questionnaires. We've eliminated the possibility of Wilson's disease, of uh, toxicity uh, such as lead or manganese or cadmium and we've eliminated the possibility of stroke um, or head injury. That being the case then, oh and you're not taking any drugs that cause these symptoms. So we have to assume then that you have Parkinson's. Now that's as good as it gets as far as diagnosis is concerned. When should we take, start taking medication? I believe there are, but there's really only one class of drugs that is useful for, for uh, treating Parkinson's and that is the levodopa drugs and they are very useful. Uh, they have generally controllable adverse effects where the um, COMPT inhibitors, the MAOB inhibitors and the dopamine agonists all have pretty uncontrollable adverse effects. The levodopa drugs have been proven to be useful functionally uh, and the uh, packaged decarboxylase inhibitor, for instance carbidopa in uh, cinnamon, assists in delivering the levodopa to the brain optimally. Now I believe we should only take medication if our lack of function is such that it is that it's become too uncomfortable or dangerous to carry out our daily tasks. So if we're working uh, for income for instance it may be that our current symptoms inhibit our activity to a degree that we can't give good value for uh, the money we're earning and this is stressful for us. So levodopa medication is very useful in this case. Or if we are moving around the house and we find that we fall or we, we can't manage getting around the furniture or working safely in the kitchen, levodopa medication is very useful for this. However, I believe it needs to be used at a low dose and uh, I suggest that we could start at 50 milligrams twice to three times a day uh, and this is assuming that we're also taking responsibility for our own health and making sure that our diet is great and our exercise is great and we're drinking plenty of water etc. Um, if the 50 milligrams three times a day is not sufficient and we need to try that for six to eight weeks, then we can slowly increase it to say 100 milligrams three times a day. Now I see clients who have managed with that medication for, that level of medication for five to six years and are now starting to turn their symptoms around and come back to a much healthier state. I may have given the impression during these questions or these answers 
that uh, recovery essentially takes uh, six to ten years, and that's not necessarily so. Of the people who fully recovered, one took two and a half years and one took over six years, and my recovery was over a period of about three and a half years. So there is a wide range of times, and as I say, much depends on their dedication. But the levodopa medication during this time can be useful. If we are taking it, we need to be taking uh, good quantities of vitamin C, 4,000 to 6,000 milligrams daily, and folic acid, uh, at least 500 micrograms daily, to mop up the uh, homocysteine we produce in our brain as a result of using the levodopa medication. David from Lilywap, Washington asks, could you discuss approaches using the emotional freedom technique for my Parkinson's condition and your opinion of the value of the technique? Yeah, this is a, a great question. Um, the emotional freedom technique is a, a very simple and powerful uh, technique for assisting us to turn negative emotions to a positive view. Now, EFT was developed from fourth field therapy, which is a much more complex um, process, but emotional freedom technique is very powerful and has been used around the world for many years. Now, it's one of a whole uh, gamut of strategies we can use to uh, develop a positive emotional status in our body. The development of Parkinson's revolves around the non-resolution of trauma or high stress early in life. And what that tends to do is get locked into our body so that our response to other situations during life is from a basis of fight, flight or freeze, from a basis of trauma. When we're dealing with the physical aspect of Parkinson's, we also need to look at the emotional and spiritual aspects of Parkinson's. And that usually means that we need to get trauma out of our body so that our body can start producing neurotransmitters appropriately and reduce the production of stress hormones. And that requires us to undertake strategies like meditation, uh, relaxation, uh, walking, sitting, dreaming, singing, sleeping, listening to music. And one of the strategies we can use is emotional freedom technique. It's been a very powerful asset for a number of my clients and I've used it myself. Uh, my wife, Nicole, has used it uh, for a number of situations and it's one of those strategies that can be used on a regular basis if we need to or just as and when we need it. For instance, when we're facing a stressful situation uh, or we have a a challenge in our mind, one of those negative ideas that goes round and round and round and round and round. We can use EFT to, to break that, to uh, develop 
a, a positive affirmation and use the tapping technique. Um, there's a lot about emotional freedom technique on the internet and it's really worth looking at and uh, using uh, from time to time or as I say on a regular basis. This is Robert Rogers and you're listening to my interview with John Coleman. If you are on the lookout for therapies that you're considering uh, as possibilities for getting relief from your symptoms, one compendium of therapies that I have just published is called Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease. You can acquire a paperback version of that book from Amazon by simply typing in Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease, or you can, you can actually get more information about the book by visiting the following website, parkinsonsdisease.me that's www.theword.parkinsons joined together with the word disease.me what we do at jumpstart to wellness and will do on october the 18th through 20th in san diego california is not actually to provide people with the information that's already in the book what we do at jumpstart is very very different and distinct from what you'll find in the book so if you're looking for a resource, consider the Jumpstart to Wellness program, which is a live press-in-the-flesh connection with other individuals who are on the road to recovery, an exploration of the self-help kinds of things you can do for yourself to be able to get relief from your own symptoms, or, of course, Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease, which is a rich a uh, summary of the best of the best that I've learned from all of the research that I've do, been doing over the last four years. Now back to John Coleman. Ernie from Olympia asks, how critical is the timing of taking the medication? I take Meripax three times a day, also C-DOPA, L-DOPA three times a day. Which should be taken first and when? The traditional view of dosing with medication is that you need to take a very strict dose at exactly the same time each day, three times a day. And there are usually very clear directions on the uh, drugs as to whether there is going to be any interaction. In practice, over the last 10 years, I've found that there is, in fact, a great deal of flexibility about medication doses and timing so that we can judge the timing and the amount of medication we take uh, according to how we are feeling on this particular day, physically, emotionally and spiritually, and what there is ahead of us for the day. For instance, there are clients that I see <clears throat> quite regularly who may be on a standard dose of 100 milligrams of levodopa three times a day. However, their, their daily function varies significantly. So if they're having a quiet day at home and uh, they might be preparing a couple of meals or pottering around the garden, they'll generally take their first dose of medication around 8 o'clock or so in the morning. Then they may take 50 milligrams instead of 100 milligrams 
sometime after lunch, and that might be all they need for the day. On the other hand, some of them have part-time work. So on the days they go to work, they get up early, they take their first 100 milligrams of levodopa at 6.30 or 7 o'clock, they get ready, they go to work, at 12 or 12.30 they'll take 100 milligrams of levodopa, when they get home from work at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, then they decide, do they need another dose, do they need 50 milligrams, do they need 100 milligrams, and that depends on how well they're functioning, whether the day's been stressful or pretty easy, and whether there's uh, a lot for them to do that evening. And there are occasions, and rare occasions, where they may have worked all day and have to go out at night, and they will take an extra 50 milligrams to get them through. And occasionally days when they take none. Now, to me, that is a sensible use of medication. The days when we take less give our body the chance to produce more dopamine and more serotonin. And, and please remember this. Don't, don't be locked into the myth that Parkinson's disease symptoms means we only have a deficiency of dopamine. As studies here and around the world have indicated that there are roughly 43 neurotransmitters deficient when we produce symptoms of Parkinson's. And these include anandamide, dopamine, serotonin, glutamine and melatonin, as well as a whole bunch of broadcast neurotransmitters. So that when we reduce our level of medication on any one day, our body is more active in producing neurotransmitters endogenously or within the body. But on the days when we need some extra support, it's okay to take that extra medication because we're using it according to our need for function. So in theory, you need to take it strictly according to prescribed dose and prescribed time. In practice, it can be variable in both cases. R.L. from Woodstock, Ontario. How do I handle the negativity, and in quotes it says doomsday, when keeping my appointment with a neurologist? This is a challenge that we all face. And there are a couple of uh, strategies that uh, I can suggest and that I think you could look at. And I'm not saying every one of these needs to be your strategy, but um, think about this. Number one, how important is it for, for you to see the neurologist? That's number one. Um, what do you want from your neurologist? Do you want a prescription for drugs? Get it from your general practitioner. Do you want an assessment of your condition? Be prepared then for a negative report. Um, do you want to develop a rapport and a companionship? Forget it, it's not gonna happen. Okay, but let's say that you feel you need to make annual or biannual um, 
visits to your neurologist for particular reasons. The number one strategy is to prepare yourself in writing. That is, if you have questions to ask, write those questions down and make a copy so that you have a copy and there's a copy you can hand to your neurologist. If you feel that you have stabilised or you've made some improvements, write that down and hand a copy of that report to your neurologist too. And when he or she starts on the, mm, well, we need to increase your medication, then you say, no, I want you to look. Here are areas in my life that have actually improved. I would like you to focus on those. Um, now, as far as the doomsday predictions, this is what neurologists know. This is what they're taught. They had 12 years of medical school uh, teaching them that illness is the most important thing in life and they had the only power to treat illness and, and if they can't treat illness, nobody else can and nobody can do anything for themselves. That's what they learn. And then after their 12 years of medical school and internship, then they do a whole bunch more of learning from neurology and they learn about illness. That's all they learn about, illness and controlling illness. They are unfortunate people because they learn nothing about wellness or about positiveness or about um, self-responsibility. That's not in their training. So we can feel sorry for them. So I would say ignore predictions because we know those predictions are wrong. We know that any doctors, or for that matter, any naturopath's prognosis is a best guess. You know, when a doctor says to somebody, you have cancer, you'll be dead in six months, that's a best guess. What we do is take that on as gospel truth and we die in six months to prove them right. But we don't have to. When doctors say to us, you have Parkinson's disease, you will get worse, you will need apomorphine um, subcutaneously, you will need a wheelchair, you will need full-time care. That's a best guess. We don't have to prove it's true. You know, the, we don't have a responsibility to prove that a doctor is right in his prognosis. Our responsibility is only to us. And I think we need to write that down for ourselves too. I am the most important person in my life. I create my own prognosis. So we need to build ourselves up. It's also really important, I think, wherever possible, if you go to a neurologist, to take a buddy with you. Now, whether that's your spouse or your partner or a close friend or a child or a sibling, somebody who is attached to you but someone who is feeling positive about your taking control of your life and is very encouraging about that, and someone who will be your ears. They can sit back and listen and focus on what you're saying 
and what the neurologist is saying. Because often we hear the bad stuff and that overwhelms us so we don't hear some of the good stuff. So sometimes perhaps the neurologist is saying strongly, look, yes, you're going to get worse and we need to increase medication. And they might be saying quietly, I don't really understand why you haven't got any worse. And that's happened to some of my clients. Now, the emphasis is still on what they know, that is, that people get worse. And they're puzzled and they say it quietly. So a buddy with you can help hear those puzzled uh, statements from the neurologist. Or if the neurologist is a bully, and some are, not many, but some are, then you have somebody there to support you and encourage you to not go back to that neurologist. Now, in Australia, there are a few neurologists who are quite positive in outlook. Um, I know of uh, four here in Melbourne, and there's at least one other up on the um, Gold Coast, up in northern uh, Australia, and uh, one in Sydney that I know of. And while they're not knowledgeable about complementary medicines, they are encouraging to their patients and saying, yes, you can do things for yourself and yes, it's good to meditate and yes, it's good to see a naturopath. Now, I'm hopeful that there is one or more in your area. I know the, uh, there's a neurologist in uh, Florida, Jill Majama Lyons, who wrote a book called What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Parkinson's Disease. And she's quite um, amenable to things like meditation and supplements, etc. So you may find it better to look around for a neurologist who's a bit more on your side, even if they're not directly uh, knowledgeable about complementary medicines. But in, in closing, I've just got to say, when you go to a neurologist, expect that they will they will speak from their very limited knowledge base. Take from them what you want and forget their prognosis. And if they push you to increase medication, make up your own mind. It may not be necessary. I'm Robert Rogers, and you're listening to my interview with Dr. John Coleman, who is speaking from his expertise as a naturopath doctor. John Coleman is also, or has been, a patient of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and over a period of about uh, three and a half or four years, explored various possibilities for what he could do for himself to be able to get relief from his symptoms. I decided that uh, what I wanted to do is to capture John Coleman's story, and so I interviewed him and got the real scoop. And I'm telling you, it wasn't a smooth ride. And I have summarized his incredible story of recovery in Pioneers of Recovery. The book uh, that you can get information on is by that very same title as a website. So it's www.3wordsjoinedtogetherpioneersofrecovery.com. 
John is one of 14 individuals that I have interviewed who I truly consider to be pioneers, individuals who are out there experimenting with lots of different specialties and possibilities and therapies and approaches, and in figuring out which ones are making a big difference to being able to get relief from symptoms and which ones aren't. I've captured all of what people have said. I've provided resources so that if you want to follow up on any of the recommendations, you can do that for yourself. So that's pioneersofrecovery.com. John Coleman tells his uh, true story of what really happened to him. After all, we now have a number of individuals who have documented their own stories of recovery in books here and there. I have these individuals as guests on my radio program, so it's not really big news today in the year 2010, but back in 1998, it was big news, and John didn't have any other role models to follow. So his story is, I want to say, quite remarkable. Back now to John Carl from Portland, Oregon, asks, in your 12-step program, are some steps more important than others? Yes. Yes, there are. Let's have a look at the 12 steps. Step one, understanding how Parkinson's disease develops, I believe is really important because the more we know about why our body is behaving in a particular way, the greater the power we have to turn that around. And if we truly understand how and why we develop Parkinson's disease, we can realise that we have an enormous amount of power to change this because it's not something we catch, it's not something mysterious, it's not beyond our understanding. This is a simple, well-understood process of suppressing a fight-flight response. So step one is really important. Step two is absolutely critical, loving ourselves. This is probably the most important step of all because everything else can revolve around that. If we truly love ourselves, we will eat food that is good for us. If we truly love ourselves, we will avoid destructive behaviour. If we truly love ourselves, we will have far more positive thought processes and far less negative ones and we'll be able to change that. If we truly love ourselves, we will undertake exercise that enhances our wellness. We will visit practitioners who treat us respectfully and lovingly and support us in our journey. So loving ourselves, and, and in the program I give ways that we can do this, loving ourselves really is the basis for turning our health around. Step five, laughter. Um, there's a concept that I have that I call the three L's, love, laughter, and meditation. Now, I hope everyone's laughing now because meditation doesn't start with L, but it's just something I concocted. Um, so laughter is the second string of this real basis of us turning our health around. Because when we laugh or pretend to laugh, we produce more anandamide and dopamine and serotonin and we 
we reduce production of stress hormones. So step five is also a really important one. And then there's the step seven, meditating. Now, as I say there, meditation is really simple. It's, it's a practice as old as man in that we would leave our cave or our, our place of sleep and we would greet the sun and we would consider that and we would worship whatever we worship. And this is a form of meditation. And we all meditate during our lives when we see things of great beauty or great peace. So those three steps, step, step two, step five, and step seven, are the basis. Step one is very, very important. And then uh, step six, the diet, absolutely critical. This is really important. If we truly love ourselves, as I said, we will eat food that is good for us. Sometimes we get confusing messages about that. And so in the step six, and I think there are actually three e-classes I've written on that, uh, step six, the diet, this provides our body with fuel that supports our love for ourselves. Urs from Sydney, Australia, has a related question. Does your 12-step recovery program interfere or complement with electric deep brain stimulation techniques? This opens a real can of worms here. Deep brain stimulation is uh, being used more and more. There's, uh, I think, something like 20,000 people have um, undertaken this uh, process. And in general, I have to say it's been a dismal failure. However, if someone has had that surgery and is uh, struggling with their health, as most are, then the 12-step program or the, the program that I promote can assist in improving their health. I found with those people who've come to me following DBS that it's much more difficult to become fully well because there is very significant damage to the brain by the surgery itself. I know that theoretically there's just two very thin wires being inserted very deep into the brain uh, two very specific areas. However, uh, those wires happen to kill several million cells on the way in. We also have electrical discharge into the brain and this seems to disrupt some function. Now, what I've seen as results is that some people gain immediate improvements and feel really happy about it and over the next 15 months to three years they start to deteriorate and they have uh, they move back onto drugs. Uh, there is a neurologist by the name of David Hadrick who's had deep brain stimulation and has managed through um, exercise, diet and really positive thinking to uh, move away from his medication. Mind you, he still has very severe symptoms of Parkinson's. I've seen his DVD. 
So um, I have to say that people who are considering DBS need to consider it again and again and I would certainly not undertake that unless and until you have met several people who had DBS five years ago at least. I recently had an interview with uh, Richard Moyer and Richard is a, an Australian actor who developed uh, Parkinson's disease many, many years ago and he was on uh, high medication and uh, apomorphine subcutaneously. He was a young man in his uh, 40s and so he uh, decided to undergo deep brain stimulation and made a movie about it called The Bridge of Midnight Trembles and that's available as a DVD. It's worth looking at because this movie uh, shows his condition before and following deep brain stimulation. His function, his body function certainly does improve to some degree following DBS. He had a nightmare ride in having surgery and infection, um, uh, adjusting the electrical discharge, etc., to reach a stage of semi-functionality with drug support. Now, following that, he's actually had six more deep brain stimulation surgeries. So he's had seven in total, and he's an absolute mess. And he's making another movie called uh, The Wind Howls Like a Hammer about his experiences. Now, these are going to be good movies to watch if you are considering having deep brain stimulation. The movies that I've seen that have come from the uh, medical profession usually show the instant benefits and, and with maybe 50% or so of people there are some instant benefits and some short-term benefits. In the long-term, though, I have yet to see a success. And that makes sense to me because what we've done is put a Band-Aid electrical discharge over a brain that is deteriorating and the process of many MRIs, local anaesthetic, the trauma of having a skull cut open, uh, etc., also exacerbates the symptoms of Parkinson's. So we're trying to offset something that we're exacerbating. All that being said, I hope you all think about it, but all that being said, yes, if you've already had deep brain stimulation, you can improve your health and you can possibly reach the stage of not needing the DBS or at least having a reduced need and reduced medication so that your quality of life improves very significantly and that revolves around this, exactly the same strategies as recovering. I'm Robert Rogers and you're listening to my previously recorded interview with Dr. John Coleman. John Coleman just discussed his 12-step program. I have released a book called The Five Steps to Recovery. Some people have asked, well, what is this? John says 12 steps, and you're going to do it in only five steps. 
what's the difference? Well, my five steps to recovery is not a program. Parkinson's recovery does not espouse or promote any program whatsoever. We're basically a research organization that provides information so you can make choices for yourself about what's going to make the biggest bang for your own buck. Five Steps to Recovery is a work that I did after realizing that thoughts are at the foundation of our well-being, our wellness, and also of disease. And so I went through common knowledge about how we can transform our thought forms, and I narrowed that down to five very clear steps and applied that to individuals who have the uh, symptoms of Parkinson's. That's what Five Steps to Recovery is. It's not a full-fledged program by any means. It's all focused on transforming your own belief systems and thought forms, many of which, of course, are not conscious. You can get more information about Five Steps to Recovery by literally typing in the title of the book, www.5stepstorecovery.com, and you'll see there a uh, very rich description of what's in that particular book. For information about John's 12-step program, go to the main website, parkinsonsrecovery.com, click on Feel Better, and you'll see within embedded within that link another link that you can click on that that will give you information about uh, John Coleman's 12 Steps to Recovery program. Now back to John Coleman. And from Austin, Texas, that you worked in a copper mine at 16 suggests metal poisoning caused Parkinson's. A chemist says once rid of the metal, your body recovered. Most don't have such a traceable cause. Your method healed you, yet may not transfer, she asks? We know that that uh, heavy metals can be uh, an exacerbating factor in the development of uh, Parkinson's disease and Parkinson's symptoms. It's true that I worked at a uh, copper mine. However, uh, my, my contact with copper was minimal in that I worked first as a clerk and then as a timekeeper at the open cut so that I had significant contact with the crude ore but not with uh, copper per se which was down in the smelter. Uh, And there were also other pollutants of course, smelting pollutants. So this was certainly a factor that we looked at and uh, looked for Wilson's disease uh, of course uh, that's an ingestion and a collection of, of copper. Uh, and we looked at heavy metal. And in fact, we couldn't find any heavy metals. Um, we looked for lead because I grew up in the era of uh, leaded paints. And uh, my dad was a builder. And often there was a lot of paint around. But we really couldn't find lead toxicity either. However, more telling than that, is that we know what causes Parkinson's. And and this is now unequivocal. When we read studies by Jeff Victoroff, Bruce McEwen, Gabor Maté, Bruce Lipton, among others, then we know that Parkinson's, like all degenerative disorders, begins in early childhood with a suppression of the fight-flight response. And this may occur as, as... uh, a result of many, many different types of circumstances. 
when we are already in this state of suppressed fight flight response, then other toxins can have a much greater impact on us. And that may include copper, garden sprays, um, such as Dealdrone, Roundup, etc. Uh, it may include things like uh, lead or cadmium um, or uh, dry cleaning fluids or paints or any number of other chemicals that are around, even petroleum uh, and diesel, sorry, gas in your world, um, <laughs> may, may create and exacerbate symptoms. Certain drugs can do that also. Amiodarone is, is one, a, a, a drug given for uh, arrhythmias uh, is known to produce Parkinsonian symptoms, as do the um, lipotrophic drugs, the, the Lipex and uh, Lipitor, the so-called anti-cholesterol drugs. You know, they're very, very toxic drugs and can cause and exacerbate Parkinsonian symptoms, as can antidepressants. Now, the fact is that we, our brain is already set up to be vulnerable, and this is where we need to look at how our Parkinson starts because yes we need to be aware that toxic chemicals, heavy metals etc are going to have an influence on our life and we may need to uh, move away from an area or, or clean our body out gently or detoxes need always be gentle um, but we need to look at how and why Parkinson's began and it will always come up as a suppression of the fight-flight response, and that's where we start our work. Penelope, Sydney, Australia. Over the last few days, there have been results of studies suggesting that there can be benefits of early medication rather than delaying. So that's a question. I find that very difficult to um, accept, and I haven't seen the studies However, we know that medication, whether it be um, levodopa medication, dopamine agonists, MAOB uh, inhibitors, COMP inhibitors, etc., anticholinergic drugs, we know that, that the focus is on improving the quantity of available dopamine in the brain. Two things there are happening. When we do that, we reduce or suppress the ability of our body to produce endogenous dopamine. And we ignore the deficiency of other neurotransmitters involved, such as anandamide, serotonin, and glutamine, etc. So that the earlier we introduce medication, the more likely it is that down the track, uh, we will have both adverse reactions and ineffective medication and a rapidly exacerbating disorder. Now, we have an increasing ratio of young onset Parkinson's uh, being diagnosed these days. And I believe that this is definitely as a result of a very toxic society, uh, very poor food, uh, 
a toxic food with lots of petrochemicals and colourings and flavourings and also the, the huge influx of artificial sweetness which are highly neurotoxic um, and the things like petroleum, traffic fumes, industrial pollution, fluoride in water, etc. is all playing a, a role in development of degenerative disorders. I, I would encourage us to look at um, not using medication unless we need it, but as I say, where function is difficult and or dangerous, then levodopa medication is the best. I also need to warn us against some of these studies because there's, there's a number of studies saying that smoking delays the onset of Parkinson's, that's smoking cigarettes. Now, that's a load of rubbish. The study shows this, but the study was constructed in such a way as it had to show that. In fact, what we know happens is that smoking cigarettes, in other words, ingesting nicotine, disguises the onset of Parkinson's. It fools our body into believing that it has more dopamine and serotonin and glutamine than it actually has it, because nicotine occupies those receptors. It's similar to um, ingesting cannabis, smoking marijuana. Cannabis occupies receptors intended for anandamide and anandamide is the neurotransmitters that makes us feel fabulous and makes every cell in our body work better. There's a lot of information on anandamide on the net too. It's worth looking at. So, and, and anandamide was discovered when people were looking for the mechanism of cannabis and how that worked in the body. Now, when we smoke cannabis, it makes us feel fabulous so I'm told, I've never used it, but it does, it's supposed to give us this feeling of euphoria. But it discourages the production of anandamide and, incidentally, dopamine and serotonin in the body. So early, um, early ingestion of Parkinson's medication, even dopamine agonists and things like selegiline, etc., are likely to exacerbate the disorder down the track in 10 years or 15 years. So I do disagree with that study and warn against it and say, look for more information. Pam from Bellingham, Washington. How long did it take you to see substantial symptom relief? And there's a second part, which is, how long did it take to become symptom-free? I didn't see substantial symptom relief for a long time. What I saw was tiny improvements. Now, I collapsed in August 1995 and the only reason I didn't take medication was that I was treated dreadfully by medical practitioners, um, a couple of neurologists, and I had two surgeons I worked with, a neurosurgeon and a, another a plastic surgeon, who knew me and diagnosed Parkinson's within me, say to me, don't take medication unless you absolutely have to. So I battled on with a, with a homeopath and a, a counsellor and a craniosacral therapist. And by early 1996, so that's about uh, four or five months, 
I'd seen some small improvements in that I was almost coherent with my speech. I, by speaking very slowly and and pausing often, I could get a sentence out. Um, I could walk um, 100 metres or so, providing I had support, and 20 or 30 metres without support, providing I focused. Uh, I could actually just do a day's work, but only just. And so, so I had Im improved. Um, I don't call them su substantial improvements. That I didn't see that until probably late 1996 or early 97, when I was well into this routine of diet, meditation, uh, using homeopathics, without necessarily understanding what I was doing. Uh, I seemed to be doing some of the right things. But in the middle of 1996, I had a huge setback. Uh, my back went into spasm. Um, I still don't know why, but it has happened to other people, and we're looking at that syndrome. I had uh, enormous spasm uh, for a couple of days, and that knocked me around for two or three months and put me back. And then towards uh, the, in the second half of 1997, I had another huge setback and thought... Uh, thought I was really worse than I was in 95 and then battled out of that. The total time from collapse in August 95 to symptom free uh, mid-1998 was three years. Um, I thought that I was well then but I realised I wasn't, I was just symptom free and I continued to work with my health and improve significantly and, and today I've got to say it's um, so 10 years since uh, I became symptom free. I'm, I'm much healthier now than I was then. Um, 10 years older but I uh, walk further, I exercise more, uh, I can work harder, I think better. So my, my health has improved significantly in the 10 years but uh, three years to become symptom free uh, my first post my recovery recovery, a guy called Shelley, who's, who's an older gentleman in Queensland, uh, in Australia. Uh, he was 79 when he came to me, uh, and at stage four and a half, uh, he, he collapsed on walking frames. He was on 1,500 milligrams of levodopa a day, plus uh, 12 or 13 other drugs for various ailments, including Parkinson's, blood pressure, reflux, etc. Um, he took about six years, six and a half years, before he became symptom-free. Uh, but he noticed improvements after, I think, three, three years, two weeks and 11 months, something like that, uh, or 11 days, something like that. I, I have got it in my uh, records he was able to leave his walking frame behind and go, go walking by himself without support for the first time in many years. So that was a very substantial improvement. The, I think one of the secrets of getting well is to keep your journal and keep a good record of what is going on week by week and month by month so that you can see very small improvements because I kept my diary and the very small improvements encouraged me to keep on going so that I was able to accumulate 
large improvements over a longer period of time. With regard to your 12-step program, would you like to tell folks about it? I'm really passionate about this. I know that you can get well. I got well, Shelley got well, Tom got well, Elizabeth got well, Harold got well. I'm seeing improvements every week in my clinic in people with Parkinson's and I know this really works. So understanding and beginning the activities, you will see some changes in your body and I know you'll want to keep going. And I think uh, even though I'm talking about myself, I think it is encouraging to know we can do this. Nothing is impossible. We can get well and, and we see the impossible happening here in the clinic. Kids getting better from muscular dystrophy, people recovering from multiple sclerosis and people recovering from Parkinson's. So I, I do encourage you, get stuck into it, take control, take responsibility and know that you can get well. Doctors Joel and Roya Herskowitz will be future guests on my radio program, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And why will medical doctor Joe Herskowitz and, and Ph.D. Roya Herskowitz be my guests? They have just published a book about swallowing and what you can do about swallowing challenges. Do you have any questions about swallowing? If you do, send them to me, and I will include your question in the questions that I ask doctors Joel and Roya Herskowitz. So send them to me. That will be Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, at Parkinson'sRecovery.com, and I would be delighted to ask your question about swallowing. A future guest also of mine on a program soon to be aired is Dr. Nate, who is a holistic dentist from Nashville, Tennessee. And I will also be happy to ask whatever questions you might have of a person like Dr. Nate, who is a dentist. So do you have questions about metals in your teeth, whether they should be removed, crowns, infections, you name it. If you do, again, send your questions, robert at parkinsonsrecovery.com, and I'll be delighted to ask Dr. Nate your questions so you can hear his answer when the show is aired here. You can always call the following number when the show is aired live if you don't have a computer, and that number is 347-945-5358. And listen to all of my programs when they are aired live. If you know individuals that would be interested but who do not have computers, please put out the news. Simply call when the program is aired, and you'll be able to hear incredible wisdom from individuals who know what it takes to be able to get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. Of course, you can always uh, connect to my radio program page and download any of the previously aired programs from the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Program website. So feel free to do that at any time. You don't have to listen to the programs when they are aired live, but it will be necessary if a person does not actually have a computer. It's a delight and it's a pleasure. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, 
all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. No, by virtue of the fact you are listening to this, that you are on the road to recovery. Good day.